And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, force five. Hello and welcome, one and all. This is the Force 5 Podcast. I am your host, ex-video store clerk, wannabe screenwriter, and fellow listener, Jason Kleberg. Tonight's topic was a really fun one to think about, top five ripoffs. But before we approach our picks, I think it's important to give some insight into the history and purpose of these kinds of films. Back in the golden age of Hollywood, there were studio-owned movie theaters, so when a film like The Cat and the Fiddle came out in 1934, it would play at MGM-owned theaters. There were also independent single-screen theaters at the time, but they wouldn't get the first run of films. They could, however, rent reels for the second run of films, and to maximize the bang for the buck, there was more to the experience at an independent theater, widely known as a double feature. If perhaps you saw the second run of Cat and the Fiddle at one of these independent theaters, it would typically start with a newsreel, and then a short film or a cartoon, and then the film, which was known as the A picture. These were then followed by a more profitable, low-budget B-picture, or as we lovingly call them now, B-movies. This made for a long night of entertainment and was a great value for Depression-era film lovers. As technology advanced and television sets made it into homes across the world, theaters and studios needed to change up their strategy a bit because between 1946 and 1956, film ticket sales dropped by over 50%. Bigger studio-owned theater chains began marketing towards bigger and better experiences, like the spectacle of a big film, better sound, 3D, better colors. But smaller theaters leaned into those B-movies. They turned to exploitation, they turned to sensationalism, those things that you could not see on your television because they were outlawed, or lower-budget pop culture interests. And one of those interests might be the big movie that had just came out or was coming out. Exploitation doesn't just mean subject matter. In some of these cases, smaller studios would simply exploit the marketing buzz that a bigger picture already had to pique curiosity. According to film historian John P. Hess, the first ripoff he could find was 1959's The Monster of Piedras Blancas, which was a direct knockoff of Creature of the Black Lagoon. Profitable, lower-budget knockoffs only ramped up in the 70s, really getting a boost from the first modern blockbuster, which we will talk about today, 1975's Jaws. Since then, films like Jaws, Aliens, and E.T. basically have turned into sub-genres unto themselves. In the 90s, with the home video craze, and now with streaming, the ripoff has only evolved further as a profit-churning machine. As for my list and that of my guest Cassidy Robinson from the MacGuffin podcast, I think we had some variety and some unexpected picks, so I hope you enjoy our lists. Last show's topic with Mara Eakin was top five Midwest films, and we had some really great internet interaction here, so what did we miss? At every rom-com pod said American Movie, at YNF Movie Pod said another Viggo Mortensen film, The Reflecting Skin, and others that were mentioned. We saw Gummo, Blues Brothers, various John Hughes films, and of course, more hype for 1996's Twister. If you want to get in on the action, I asked this question on Instagram, at Force5Podcast, on Twitter, at Force5Pod. So join the discussion. I post almost every day, so check it out. Also, a listener called me out on Twitter for being wrong about something on the last show, and I need to own up to that mistake. I said that Death Ride to Osaka was Jennifer Jason Leigh's last made-for-TV film, but that was not the case, not by a long shot. 
In a lengthy message from at disc commentary, uh, this person listed many made-for-TV films that she starred in after Death Ride to Osaka, 1990's Buried Alive and Partners in Life, The Love Letter in 1998, so many others, all the way up to like 2014. So yes, I was wrong there. Good catch. And listeners, keep me honest. If I say something that's incorrect, it's the only way that we get better is by correcting those kind of things. So yes, I was wrong. Jennifer Jason Lee, made for TV queen. Before we get to our list, before we get Cassidy Robinson on here, I want to talk about two things I've been watching. I've got one good, one bad. So let's start with the good Ridley Scott's The Last Duel. That what you say is true. My father told me my life would be blessed with good fortune. I'm married. I was a good wife. And then was judged and shamed by my country. This Rashomon-style story explores the relationships between Jean de Carouge, Jacques Legree, and Marguerite de Carouge in medieval France from different points of view. The Last Duel is based on a 2004 book of the same name, and I feel obligated to start this review by saying that I have not read the book, nor did I go into this film knowing anything about the documented history of the parties involved. The film starts as the titular Last Duel gets underway, but quickly cuts from it to give us two hours of context around it. We end up seeing three sides to the story with subtle differences between each narrator. Although the differences aren't immense, they are effective. One instance, for example, shows De Carouge and Legree reuniting after quite some time, and in each story, the same words are said by a different person based on whose account we're seeing. Jean de Carouge's story is that of a man who feels he's been continuously wronged by Count Pierre and his main squire, Jacques Legree. Played by Matt Damon, he's got a ridiculous haircut and a brave ferocity to him, one that continuously leads him into battle for the French. When he marries Marguerite, things go from bad to worse for him, leading him towards his battle against Legree. Now Legree's story is that of a Lothario who finds himself grounded by a knight's beautiful, intelligent wife. Played by Adam Driver, he's got a long flowing mane and a reputation for getting around. He's Count Pierre's numbers guy, and it's a position that served him well. When he falls in love with Marguerite, things go from good to bad for him, leading him towards his battle against Descartes Rouge. And then of course the third point of view is that of Marguerite, an intelligent but naive woman who finds herself in the middle of a battle between Descartes Rouge and Legree. She's played by Jodie Comer, who is absolutely magnificent in this role. Side characters include Ben Affleck's delightfully bitchy drunk with another bad hairdo, interested in fun personalities and taking care of those around him. He is, of course, Count Pierre. Another standout side character is that of King Charles VI, played by Alex Lothar. He does an absolutely tremendous job of portraying this young, excited dummy who, by all real-life accounts, was a terrible king. The film is extremely well made, and I'm pretty surprised it didn't gain any Academy Award nominations for either costume or production design. Every detail looks fantastic, from the castles and settings to the dresses and the armor. 
And while this isn't necessarily a film about battles on the field, as much as it is emotional battles, it all leads to a climactic last duel, hence the title, illustrating both the final showdown between the two men and one of the last judicial duels to the death, as by 1386, these were not illegal, but were highly uncommon. The success of this film really hinges on the strength of the last battle after so much buildup and the opening shot tease, and I'm happy to say that it does not disappoint. Ridley Scott knows how to shoot action. The fight is brutal, tense, and due to the way the film plays out, there's an extra layer added to spice things up that is very effective. I thought The Last Duel was a very good film. It's a well-told medieval soap opera cut with short, brutal battle scenes until it explodes in one final, extremely satisfying face-off. I've heard people complain in reviews that the three stories just aren't different enough to warrant three different points of view, but I disagree with that. They're wildly different, just in extremely light ways. A smile in one person's truth is a stoic look in another's. A playful laugh in one person's truth is a dreadful cry for help in another's. It's an extremely effective way to tell the story that will most likely reward subsequent viewings. By all accounts, this film was considered a box office bomb, making back just $30 million on a $100 million budget. Ridley Scott blamed modern audiences' lack of interest in intellectual films over comic book movies and millennials for being addicted to their cell phones. To that end, though, I'm not sure I agree with him. This was a two-and-a-half-hour medieval film about an extremely gritty topic released in theaters during a pandemic, and I think that's why it failed at the box office. But you can check this out right now, streaming on HBO Max. The second film I watched was ugh, not as good. This is 1987's Ghost Riders. There is evil amongst us. Devil himself is within them walls. Bring them and kill her. And hang you My dad is the authority on Texas history. You've returned. Who? Who returned there? Who's that? Who are these? I don't know. Why are they doing this? Gun. It's the gun. It shall serve as a reminder to future generations of the wicked soul we dispatched to hell this very night. I'm tired of messing with these guys. In 1888, a band of outlaws is sentenced to death by hanging in a small town. Before he takes the big trip, the leader of the pack, Frank Clements, puts a hex on the land. Fast forward to 1988. The outlaws have emerged from the ground eager to kill the descendants of the reverend who put them down a century ago. Our story in 1988 mostly follows three people, a grizzled Vietnam vet who still wears his army clothes because he has either forgotten to change in the last decade or has no other character traits, Pam, a woman who's interested in the history of the Clements gang, and the grandson of the old reverend. The ghost gang members ride horses and are armed with their guns of old, live ammo and all. The logistics of things are never really explained, but then again, it's a movie about ghost cowboys, so who really cares? It's directed by Alan Stewart, who only directed one other thing, his direct TV follow-up to this called Ghetto Blaster in 1989, which I've always wanted to see, but it hasn't been available on disc. He also helped produce the incredible Action USA, which is one of the reasons this film piqued my interest. 
The other reason is that the premise is intriguing. I'm a sucker for genre mashups, and mixing a western film with a ghost slasher style story is a concoction I should love. Hell, one of the first comic book projects I ever wrote was for a western vampire movie, so the logline here is right up my alley. The question, of course, is how these three yokels are going to stop a pack of five ghosts and get out of Dodge alive. As the back of the Blu-ray states, you can't kill what's already dead. The 80s were filled with low-budget horror outings, and I'm sad to say that this is one of the least interesting I've seen in a long time. This was made in Texas for about $50,000, and it looks like only a tenth of that was actually spent. We don't really get into the thick of things until about 45 minutes in, and I'll be honest, I had lost interest far beyond that. I'm not watching Ghost Rider for people pontificating about life. I'm here for the skeleton cowboy ghosts on the box art. Aside from a nasty headshot someone takes in the first scene, there's very little gore and the set pieces are quite boring. As with many of these films, the actors are largely unknown and don't bring much to the table. The ghost outlaws have no personality and don't speak, and the poster is about as misleading as it gets. It portrays three skeleton cowboys walking down a street with guns cocked. There were no skeletons in this film. The ghost cowboys look exactly like they did before they took the last ride. Hell, there aren't even streets in this film because everything takes place in the Texas woods, aside from a late film climax showdown at a house. The action is uninteresting, and there's never any real tension, even during the climax of the film. To answer the question I posed earlier, how do these three yokels stop a pack of five ghost cowboys, the solution may surprise and disappoint you. Good old-fashioned bullets. You can shoot them and they bleed just like men, flesh and blood, but then they get up and are generally annoying again. At the end of the film, two of our heroes are cornered on the ground, nowhere to go with five ghosts walking towards them, guns drawn. All hope appears to be lost. This is the tension that movies are supposed to present. How are these two going to get out of this perilous situation? Pam pulls out a sawed-off double-barrel shotgun and aims it at the spirits. Now I know what you're thinking. It's five gunslinger apparitions against two shotgun shells. So, advantage to the gang. And then she pulls a Michael Scott. If I was in a room with Hitler, Bin Laden, and Frank Clements and had a gun with two bullets, I'd shoot Frank twice. Frank falls down and the gang just walks away and disappears into thin air like a fart in a Saharan sandstorm. Why? Who cares? I was happy because the movie was ending. Ghost Riders reminded me of my prom night, an exercise in slow burn disappointment. After seeing this, I'm a little weary about seeing Ghetto Plaster. It's rare that I find a film that I feel has no redeeming qualities, so instead, I'm going to talk a little bit about the disc because Vertigo actually did put together an impressive package. The film looks about as good as it could. The new 4K scan was taken straight from the 16mm A and B negative. The picture is clear and crisp. Aside from seeing it in 1988, this is probably the best this film will ever look. The sound is not as good as the picture, although I'm guessing based on what they were able to produce that it's better than the elements they were given to work with. The mono soundtrack has a bit of background hiss to it, and the dialogue feels muffled and muddy. In terms of special features, the list is impressive. We start with an audio commentary by cinematographer and producer Thomas L. Calloway, writer-producer James Dismari, and moderator Steve Latshaw. There are two mini-documentaries, one that was filmed for this release called Bringing Out the Ghosts, The Making of Ghost Writers, which sticks Calloway and Dismari in a room to talk about some aspects of the production. The archive documentary, which was produced by Baylor University in 1987, is titled Low Budget Films on the Set of Ghost Writers. This is more about low-budget films in general, but is a nice companion. 
A few trailers round out the disc. In short, I do not recommend Ghost Riders, but if you're a fan for some reason, Vertigo's done a nice job with the presentation. Speaking of nice presentations, I've got one question for you. Do you like scary movies? If you do, today's show is brought to you by the new Stab Blu-ray box set, now available at any major retailer through Sunrise Studios. If you're a Stab fan, this is the box set for you. It contains all eight films in the set, including the original Stab, the director's cut of Stab 2, Stab 3, Return to Woodsboro, Stab 3, again, Hollywood Horror, Stab 4, Knife of Doom, Stab 5, Clock of Doom, Stab 6, Stab 7, and of course, the eighth film, just ridiculously titled Stab. The discs are packed with special features, including director's commentaries, deleted scenes, gag reels, kill counts, and features interviews with actresses like Heather Graham and Tori Spelling, as well as people who were involved in the actual events, the actual Woodsboro murders, like Sidney Prescott and Gail Weathers. This box set leaves no knife unturned. Head to your nearest retailer and tell them Ghostface sent you to get stabbed today. Welcome back to Force 5. Tonight, I'm joined by Cassie Robinson. He's a film writer at the Idaho State Journal. He writes for the MacGuffin, and he's a co-host for the MacGuffin podcast. Cassidy Robinson, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. I'm excited to get a great topic. Before we get into our movies, though, let's talk about your show a little bit. Tell us about the MacGuffin podcast. What's it all about? Well, it's a movie review podcast. Uh, we we try and go as often as we can. Of course, schedules um, withholding. Uh, yeah. But you know, basically, we we go about uh, once a week, and we try to cover one new movie that was released um, or relatively new. Of course, in COVID times, you know, we're dealing mostly with stuff that's streaming, which means we can review it a little sooner in this last couple months uh you know we're now catching up with some of the late december stuff that's just now coming to streaming services so that's kind of what we've been doing as of late but uh yeah we try and cover one new movie and then at the end of the podcast uh one of us will assign the other uh streaming homework off of one of the main services you know something that you can watch for free that's perhaps an older film or a lesser known film or a cult film or something like that. And we'll discuss that as well. And we often have like pre-review segments where we might do lists, not unlike the ones we're doing on this show, um, as well as, you know, movie news. We just did a segment on our last episode about the Oscar nominations and, and things like that. So we try and kind of keep things interesting. Very cool. Yeah, those uh, the pre-review segments are those thought-provoking uh, segments that make you think about what your choices would be, just like I have the goal for this show to be. I know you mm -hmm. talked about one, which was the certain directors defining films, and it got me thinking about my favorite directors defining films, and it's a tough topic. You come up with some good pre-review segments. Yeah, I, 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 for my money, that's my favorite stuff on the podcast. It's, it, you know, when I'm programming the show beforehand and I'm trying to think about, you know, what we're going to do to fill out the runtime. Um, 
I think that's the most interesting stuff. And I think that's where some of our best uh, content comes from. But it's a little harder to market or SEO, you know, some some kind of obscure list or something like that. Whereas I can just say like this week, Nightmare Alley, that's what we're reviewing. But but yeah, I think, um, you know, for people who click on our show and then they might get frustrated that it takes 20 minutes, 25 minutes to get to the actual reviews. Don't press fast forward too quick because I I think the best stuff a lot of the times comes before the reviews. Yeah, it's it's definitely good material. Speaking of good material, Cassidy, what are some of your favorite films of all time? Just to give people a litmus test of your taste. I always say this, uh, like the gun to my head answer that I have just, you know, on the ready is Jaws. Mm. Um, It's probably the movie I've seen the most, the most times in my lifetime. Um, I first saw it on TV when I was a little kid with my parents, you know, edited, of course. And then, uh, (laughs) right. Yeah. With, with commercials and then, uh, eventually ended up owning it on VHS and DVD and Blu-ray. And, um, I've, I've watched Jaws on the beach, uh, in, uh, in California. Well, when I was living there, uh, I got to, you know, do like a, I don't know, maybe if you've ever gone to this or not, I don't know exactly where you are in California, but um, over in Huntington Beach, they have like a program in the summer where they have a big inflatable screen and you can go and watch like classic movies on there. But Jaws on the Beach was a must. I had to do that. Um, But other favorites, I kind of tend towards sort of the thriller horror genre angle. Um, so, uh, you know, some of my other favorites, Silence of the Lambs, Blue Velvet, uh, Sunset Boulevard, I, you know, and but I also like one of my all time favorite movies is uh, Clueless, which I believe actually came up on an uh, episode that you did not very long ago. <laughs> yeah, very recently. Very recently. Yeah. That movie's like comfort food to me. I can I can watch that in no matter what kind of mood of a, that I'm in. I can watch that and enjoy it. Oh, it's a classic. It's a classic, Mm -hmm. as is Jaws. And Jaws is actually a kind of a perfect segue into our topic tonight, because after Jaws hit, there were Mm. a ton of ripoffs of Jaws. And it seemed that especially in the like 70s and 80s, when something was a hit, there were a ton of ripoffs. And that's what Mm -hmm. we're doing tonight. Top five ripoffs. What was the inspiration for your topic? Um, Yeah, I think I just think it's a really interesting phenomenon that happens in film. And uh it's it, it's interesting to kind of look at especially when you have some distance and some time away from when these little uh uh bursts or trends happen um you can kind of get a better idea of sort of the i guess sort of the context of why these movies hit in the first place and then what what the ripoffs sort of bring to the table or don't bring to the table yeah and 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 oftentimes if a, if a ripoff is successful enough on its own, it can end up sort of um, diverting into its own variation or subgenre. Uh, and that's what I find really interesting. I, I love sort of like looking back at, um, you know, film genres and subgenres and micro genres and, and seeing like where these, um, where these, these points of, 
of division happen and why why a genre might change or start to become represented in a different way. A lot of times it's because somebody was trying to do something somebody else did and either didn't do it very well, but came up with something interesting or uh, did it very well and uh, ended up setting a new standard. Did you have any qualifiers when it came to your list? Like what do you consider a ripoff? And side note, did you add any of the uh, the mockbusters on your list? I did not, and I was I was a little afraid when I like you know after we had talked about this online for a little bit, and I proposed this idea. I was, I was like a week or so later, and I was like, "Oh, yeah, I, I forgot to say I'm I'm not going to be using any of like the Asylum pictures or, or <laughs> right. sci-fi originals or things like that, which are you know obvious cash grabs. Sometimes fun in their own right, but not necessarily what I'm looking for. For me, the difference between a ripoff and say something like an homage is is it can be a blurry line, and I'm sure I have. Uh, Some of my picks are arguable as far as that goes, but I'm kind of looking for, um, you know, at least a a sense of of structure that sort of mirrors the original that it's coming from. Whereas you say something like, you know, the Godfather does well, and then all of a sudden there's a new wave of, of... gangster films that's to me not really a ripoff so much as a resurgence of a genre right right i'm along the same lines i think uh i did not choose to go for movies that just emulate the formula as much as things that clearly just tried they were they saw that film and said you know we're gonna do that film just a Mm. little bit differently i also left off the mockbuster mainly because i just do not like them When we say mockbuster, if you're not familiar with the term, listeners, it's when you'll see this movie like The Avengers, and then this company named Asylum comes in, and they make a very low-budget movie called The Revengers, and they (laughs) throw it into, like, red boxes around the country with the hopes that some grandma's going to go to the red box for their grandsons, and they just accidentally think that's The Avengers, and... I don't, I mean, I despise those movies. I don't have any of those on my list, especially because there are so many really amazing ripoffs from the 70s, 80s, and 90s that I wanted to give some shine to. All of the movies on my list, I I wouldn't say that they were all good, but they are immensely entertaining, and a lot of it comes from the fact that they are trying directly from more popular movies. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I I was very excited that you picked this topic. Because uh, I'm a genre fan, and there's a lot of these in in different genres. So, Cassidy Robinson, you ready to get into this list? Yes, absolutely. You know what's gonna happen? You know what's happening here right now? I know what's gonna happen. What? You just made the list. All right, Cassidy Robinson, why don't you kick us off? Number five on your list of top five ripoffs. So mine are in no particular order. I love all of these movies. Um, but uh, I went with uh, When Harry Met Sally from 1989. Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan in a comedy about love. Someone is staring at you in personal growth. About life. I'm going to be 40. <laughs> when? Uh, 
in eight years. And fresh produce. Grip. A new Rob Reiner comedy. I'll roll down the window. When Harry Met Sally. Rated R starts Wednesday at select theaters. Okay, you're going to have to explain why this is a ripoff, because I don't know. So this was this was directed by Rob Reiner, and it was co-written by uh, Reiner and Nora Ephron. Um, and this, a lot of people see this kind of like being like the start of the modern romantic comedy in a lot of ways. But I think when you're watching the movie, it is intensely clear that they were trying to make a Woody Allen film. Mm. And I know that that name is a little like uh, <laughs> um, maybe a, a third rail on, sure. on some podcasts. So, but uh, I actually saw when Harry met Sally before I seen any of like Annie Hall or Manhattan or, or, you know, Hannah and her sisters or any of the number of films that are when Harry met Sally is liberally borrowing from, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it doesn't necessarily follow the structure of any one particular uh, Woody Allen film, maybe a little bit with, with uh, the, the chronology kind of being played played around with is sort of Annie Hall-esque. Um, but uh, certainly, I think the way that the characters are written um, and the way that uh, Billy Crystal performs, he very much feels like one of those one of those Woody Allen characters that he would be playing himself in one of his movies. And I, I mean, I, I think when I was watching the special features or listening to the uh, commentary on it, they even said like one of the goals for the film when they were scouting locations is to find interesting New York locations that Woody, Woody Allen hadn't already used. That's a interesting. I've never really thought of it that way, but now that you're describing it as a as a Woody Allen style ripoff, I can see that. This sort of like led to like a lot of things. I mean, you one could say that, you know, a movie like High Fidelity is kind of like the Gen X version of a of a Woody Allen style romantic comedy or or even 500 Days of Summer definitely with the back and forth chronology and and stuff like that as well. Yeah, all right. That's an interesting pick for number one and not one or number five and not one that I considered. Uh, This is going to be an interesting list. My (laughs) number five is going to go in a completely different direction. And like you, mine isn't really I'm just going to kind of play it fast and loose with the with my numbers because I don't have a clear number one. But I will Mm -hmm. start off with this one because you said Jaws is one of your favorite movies. There are Mm -hmm. a ton of Jaws ripoffs, and I don't know if you have any on your list, but uh, we could do a whole show on on top five Jaws ripoffs. Oh, for sure. Cruel Jaws, which was in Italy named Jaws 5. Uh, Tintorera is another really great one. But for my money, the best Jaws ripoff is from 1977, and it's called Orca. The ancient Romans called him Orca Orcinus. Latin for bringer of death. He is without challenge, the most powerful animal on the globe, the killer whale. Orca has 48 teeth, set in two impressive rows. In some respects, the orca's intelligence may be even superior to man's. They remain loyal to one mate for life. As parents, they are exemplary, better than many human beings. And like human beings, they have a profound instinct for vengeance. An innocent creature is destroyed by an act of human cruelty. 
and the ultimate battle of man against nature begins. Dino De Laurentiis presents Orca. Orca starts by showing you that this movie is more badass than Jaws because we have the killer whale kill a great white shark. Like, it's telling you right there, the tone is set. We are more badass than Jaws. It's about an orca whale that witnesses a boat captain played by Richard Harris, who most people will probably know these days as Dumbledore, but he's been mm-hmm. in, he was at a ton of things, a great British actor. And the the captain kills its pregnant mate. It's a pretty horrifying scene. He thinks he's catching the male. He catches the female. There's a fetus inside, an unborn fetus that he just like washes off the deck of the ship. And this orca is witnessing this and then goes on a revenge spree because as one of the characters in the movie says, orcas always remember the face of the human that tries to harm them. And the the captain doesn't want to hunt down this orca, but the locals kind of force him to because... The whole situation is disturbing the fish ecology that they rely on in order to, to to live. So we need to get rid of this killer whale. And it's up to Richard Harris to do this. It's an interesting film in that with most animal attacks movies like Jaws, the animal is the villain. But in this film, the traditional human protagonist that we're following, he's he's not necessarily a villain, but he needs to pay for what he's done. And the audience is realizing that as the character is, is realizing this throughout the runtime, the orca here is the one that we're rooting for because we know what it would be like to be in his shoes. In terms of imagery, there are some impressive scenes here. Uh, there's a great scene where an orca whale takes out a house. Yes, an orca <laughs> takes a house down. The only drawback to orca is that it is terribly edited. The, the editing on this movie is awful. But uh, there's some great scenes. The climax is amazing. This showdown between the Orca and Richard Harris after it has like decimated his entire crew. Just uh, just great. For my money, the best Jaws ripoff, 1977's Orca. That's great. Yes, there, there's a lot of these movies. Actually, I believe the same time I saw Jaws, it was a double feature that night with Grizzly, which oh, was yeah. like another Jaws ripoff that came out around the same time. Yep. On cable, there was a movie called Rattlers about, you know, houses being infested by rattlesnakes. There was a <laughs> lot of this stuff kind of happening towards the end of the 70s and the early 80s. And actually, you could actually you could argue that Jaws 3, uh, in which the story is that the, you know, the mama shark has her baby taken by SeaWorld and it dies and then goes back to get revenge and then jaws for the revenge in which it's the ancestral shark of the shark from the first jaws um just let that soak in for a little bit uh <laughs> <laughs> the, the, that though that sort of plot conceit of them coming back to you know get revenge um my, maybe they were ripping off orca so then it becomes like a rip off of a rip off <laughs> true i mean jaws 3 <laughs> came out in what 1983 so we got 6 years on it so it's it's uh-huh. entirely possible yeah that the whole revenge line number 4 for you the movie go from 1999 go to the movie everyone's talking about word word go to the movie critics are calling wild edgy and unpredictable Whoa. give me that gun 
Entertainment Weekly declares this is it. There's a tongue there. Wow, bang, surprise. Go to the movie Rolling Stone magazine calls The Real Good. You're the first non-fake person I've met here. What are you on? Whatever you do, go, go, go. do not ask go. Rated R opens everywhere April 9th. Have you seen this? Gosh, I saw it in 1999 when I was working at my, my video store. But I, have, I don't think I've seen it since then. Uh, this is one of my favorite Tarantino ripoffs. And again, like Jaws ripoffs, you could almost do an entire podcast or at least a series of podcasts about the Tarantino ripoffs that came out in the mid to late 90s. Yeah, specifically like the Pulp Fiction ones. Right. Yeah, that were kind of looking at different aspects, whether it be like the pop culture, pop culture savvy dialogue um, spoken by the lead characters or whether it's messing with the chronology and and that's sort of what go does it 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 has a it's kind of a it's an interesting film i've talked about this recently on my podcast um i and i come back to it every now and then uh but it has this interesting thing where it feels a little bit sort of like the post linklater slacker movies and then structurally living in sort of the uh, puzzle box crime world of a Tarantino film. But yeah, it, it, it's, it's about these, you know, groups of young 20 somethings who are having these different misadventures. We have one girl um, uh, who is trying to sell some drugs at a rave and then ends up getting in trouble with a local drug dealer. Um, we have another story of these two, of these, uh, a group of friends who go to Las Vegas and end up getting caught up in this misadventure with uh, guns and car chases and such. And then another story about these two actors um, who get caught up in uh, a really awkward house situation where they, they think they're being asked to join like a foursome or something like that but it doesn't quite go that direction <laughs> um and it and it kind of plays around with the perspective and uh, you know once you enter one story you start to see like how the other story is sort of playing out in the background of that uh and yeah i i just i think of all of the tarantino ripoffs that came out during that time go was the most creative and had the best set of characters. Um, I should say, you know, this film stars Sarah Polly, Jay Moore, Scott Wolf, who was a thing in the 90s, yeah. uh, Tay Diggs, <laughs> um, Katie Holmes. Uh, this was one of her first big movies, I think. Um, and uh, Timothy Oliphant, who plays the drug dealer. And one of my favorite scenes uh, is with uh, William Fickner. Who was a character actor? Some people might remember from things like The Dark Knight. Yeah, he's the bank manager in The Dark Knight. Yeah, he has one very memorable scene, but in this movie, he he plays the guy who's approaching uh, Jay Moore and Scott Wolf's characters, and they're you know it, it's it gets incredibly uncomfortable until they realize what's actually happening, and then it's absolutely hilarious. I'm also just very fond of this era of of the 90s, that kind of like weird squishy zone that existed between like uh, the pre-internet and post-internet time. Mm -hmm. um, 
it feels a, like this is like I call this like the the OK computer era <laughs> of the 90s when we had long since done away with like like grunge and naturalism and earthy crunchiness. And now it's all about like, oh, the future is happening and it's the Internet and it's the web and what's going to happen. And and maybe we're all becoming disconnected and blah, 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 blah. Um, and then it's all like rave music and, you know, uh, British pop music that's informed by rave music, which is all over the soundtrack. Uh, I, also a brilliant soundtrack to this movie as well. But yeah, this is directed by Doug Lyman, who would later go on to do like Born Identity and um, uh, bigger action films like that. This is an early screenplay, if not the first uh, feature length screenplay by John August, who would later go on to write a lot of stuff for the later Tim Burton films. Yeah, Big Fish. And uh, he does a lot of a lot of stuff now. He has the uh, Script Notes podcast now, too. Yes, which I have not listened to, but I've been told that I need to. Well, man, that's a, a one I need to to revisit. I, like I said, I haven't seen it since it was in theaters, but obviously as a huge Tarantino fan, I do have a soft spot for those well-done Tarantino rip-offs like Two Days mm-hmm. in the Valley and Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. So it sounds like this needs to uh, boil up to the top of my list. Yeah, and and some people might not consider it this, but it is also technically a Christmas film. So mm. if you're around the December time and you want to sort of experience Christmas in a, uh, you know, warehouse rave, there is that <laughs> happening as well. You know, I'll go with a movie that I love because of how bad and how ridiculous it is. This is also from the late 90s. This one came out in 1996. Now, there have been a ton of Die Hard ripoffs over the years. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Die Hard on a Bus. Die Hard on a Mountain with Cliffhanger. Die Hard in a Hockey Arena with Sudden Death. But uh, (laughs) Skyscraper from 1996 is literally just Die Hard with Anna Nicole Smith playing the Bruce Willis role. And she is flying right into the heart of it. The enemy is here. They're gonna kill us for us in this briefcase. There's a satellite tracking system. Could destroy an entire city. It's headed for a third world country. Now go! We are the People's Democratic Liberation Party. You're standing between me and $1.5 billion. Every five minutes, I will kill a hostage until you return the case to me. This I only know by reputation. (laughs) Yeah. This is a movie that is immensely entertaining because of how bad it is. And I've said it on this show before. I am a sucker for those movies that are so bad that they're good. And Skyscraper, if I was doing a list of top five movies that are so bad they're good, Skyscraper would be on that list. It really is the plot of Die Hard. There's a group of foreign terrorists led by a calm eccentric. They break into the skyscraper, use the system to lock the place down from the inside, take a bunch of people hostage, and then they use their time inside to complete a heist. It's even got an Ellis character who begets the exact same fate, 
we get your Carl Winslow character, you know, the cop who gets his first kill, the cop helping from the outside. We get people crawling through building vents. We get a scene where the hero repels down the face of the skyscraper and kicks a window in. It's Die Hard, but <laughs> Anna Nicole Smith. She is in this film just the worst. Now, it's it's really amazing to see her trying to act well you can tell the entire time she's drugged up on Percocets. And knowing oh now what happened with her, it's a little distressing watching it. But if you're watching this as a direct TV a- attempt to cash in on essentially you're really just trying to cash in on her body. It's a wildly entertaining time. Uh, we get some like really weird interstitial sex scenes here. They're like soft core scenes just to get Anna Nicole Smith naked. There are just inept bad guys. You get the lead bad guy who's just like spouting off Shakespeare lines. She's played as this, oh, she, she's a helicopter pilot, but she's a badass. And we see in this like, uh, this flashback how she can shoot all these cans with a six shooter off of the fence. But when it comes to firing a gun in the movie, she's just like shooting stacks of papers and old computers. I love it because it is so much fun to watch. If you go on YouTube and look up Anna Nicole Smith outtakes from Skyscraper, it is some of the most entertaining outtakes you will ever see. So uh, yeah, I got to throw some love out there for the diehard ripoff Skyscraper from 1996 at number four. Wow, yeah, and there were so many ways you could have gone with that. Um, 1996 seems pretty late for a direct ripoff where they're not even, I mean, this is post-speed, this is post a lot of things. Yep. But I guess it kind of makes sense that it was kind of more for the like uh, late-night cable softcore demo. Yeah, and it, I think, <laughs> you know... I I'm guessing they were like Anna Nicole Smith. We got her under contract and we have a building that's available. So let's just do die hard. I, right. I imagine that if they had a bus available, they they probably could have done speed too. <laughs> now there was a movie in, in 2018 starring Dwayne, the rock Johnson called skyscraper. Was that a remake? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I wish it was a remake of a die hard ripoff starring the rock would have been amazing. Probably would have been more entertaining than Skyscraper 2018 turned out to be. Possibly. <laughs> All right. Number three for me. So one of my favorite directors, and you'll probably know kind of where I'm going with this by this uh, setup. Uh, one of my favorite directors is Brian De Palma. And when Brian De Palma first started out, he was largely ripping off Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, and a lot of his early films, uh, like Obsession is basically Vertigo um, or you you take a look at a movie like uh, Blowout, which is takes a lot of similar concepts from a lot of the the uh, the man who shouldn't have been there kind of uh, Hitchcockian thrillers. Um, but for my money, my favorite one of my favorite psycho ripoffs is Brian De Palma's Sisters from 1972, starring Margot Kidder. Conjoined twins called Siamese challenge life at their first breath. Some twins have been separated and lead normal lives. Others never can. Sisters. They were once one in body and perhaps one in mind. Danielle and Dominique. 
One loving, one hating, one innocent, the other... Where does Danielle end and Dominique begin? Sisters, rated R. This it kind of plays with the idea of you know the the big third act reveal and the psychosis angle. Funnily enough, it kind of starts out pretty naturalistic. Uh, it starts out with this like you know she's this um, French model who's being taken out on a date, and then you know there's this long kind of lead up of the date bringing her back home. And then we see, uh, you know, this this accident occur in which her evil twin sister uh, ends up, you know, killing somebody in their apartment. And then across the way to to throw in a little bit of a rear window, uh, mm-hmm. the the um, there's a nosy journalist who witnesses the murder and decides to try and solve it because the police don't seem particularly interested or convinced that there's anything going wrong. Um, and then as the movie goes, it kind of becomes more and more histrionic and more and more bonkers. And for me, more and more fun. I My favorite Brian De Palma isn't when he's trying to do something like The Untouchables or, you know, Redacted or some of these more quote-unquote serious films. I like it when he just like goes head first into you know borderline exploitation uh hitchcock with a dash of giallo that's my favorite brian de palma and this is one of the first of the movies he did like that throughout the 70s and it's it's a lot of fun it's kind of a head scratcher it's kind of ridiculous but seeing how much praise that the film uh malignant got this year <laughs> people really need to go back and watch sisters yeah sisters is great de palma is great this one feels really influenced by a couple of films uh obviously mm-hmm. the the giallo genre is represented here and uh, you know de palma clearly influenced by hitchcock in a lot of different movies like you said there's some rear window here there's some psycho here i think he was equally as inspired by Roman Polanski. And I can see some repulsion in here. I can see Mm -hmm. some Rosemary's baby in here. And I think he took a lot from Polanski as well as Hitchcock. If you watch his, his early stuff, uh, sisters is great. Like you said, it's super bonkers. It's got, um, a a wild story overall. Um, a lot of split screen imagery, crazy sexual violence stuff. Um, and and it feels insane, but yeah, I can see where it's, where it's, drawn influence from a couple of different directors on this one yeah you know i never i never really drew that distinction um between polanski's uh psychological thrillers of the 60s and early 70s and what uh brian de palma sort of started his career out with but you make an interesting argument that when polanski was kind of out of the picture it left a a wide gap for de palma to come in and sort of fit right in i would say this feels to me it feels like a polanski movie with 
the Hitchcock cinematic language applied. Right. I would say watch um watch Repulsion and then Rosemary's Baby and then watch this and you'll see a lot of that in there. Um uh, but with the lens of Hitchcock. There's definitely some uh, Rosemary's Baby stuff happening towards the end of the film. Um now that you mention it. Yeah, I, I, and that's where the movie uh where the wheels really kind of like fall off the wagon <laughs> in the best way yeah. possible. Um uh and that's when uh it it starts to feel a lot more sort of dreamlike and gauzy and and I, those are the aspects of uh, uh, De Palma that I really appreciate as well. Sisters is a great movie. If you haven't seen Sisters, go back at nineteen seventy two. Um, great movie and an experience that you won't soon forget. That's for sure. Number three for me is an odd one. Um, there's a director named Bruno Matte. He is an Italian guy who made a ton of ripoff films. He made uh, Private House of the SS, which was ripping off the Nazploitation movies, Naziploitation movies, mm-hmm. however you would say that, uh, which was ripping off like the Night Porter. He had Strike Commando, which I talked about on this program a couple months back, which ripped off Rambo, Zombie 3, which was ripping off the zombie movies that came before it, and uh, most famously, probably Shocking Dark, which was in Italy released as Terminator 2 but had more to do with aliens than Terminator. In 1988, he made a film called Robo War. Here we have Corporal Neil Corey, top marksman rating. Private Larry Garino, Alfred Bray, dubbed Papa Doc. Sonny Peel, martial arts expert. His friends call him Blood. Quang, forward scout and point taker. And this is our coordinator, Major Murphy Black. Enemy sighted, moving target, three seed. On target, on target, on target. And Robo War is by and large a predator ripoff with a dose of Robocop tossed in at the end. Are you familiar with Robo War? I am not. Please sell me. <laughs> okay. Well, cl- I'm, I'm guessing that you've seen Predator. I guess I have. All right. So Predator is about this group of commandos who are chopping their way through the jungle. They're led by this big muscular dude, Arnold Schwarzenegger, obviously. They come across some gorillas. They they are in real world combat. And then their group starts being killed off one by one by the Predator. Well, in this movie, we also have a group of commandos who are chopping their way through the jungle, this time led by Reb Brown. Yes, Reb Brown as Murphy Black. We have characters like Papa Doc and Blood and a couple other bad dudes. They're nicknamed the BAM, the big ass motherfuckers. <laughs> and they encounter some gorillas and they have to take care of them in a real world combat situation. They dispatch of them really easily. And then the group starts getting killed off one by one. Instead, though, of becoming destroyed by an alien predator, they are being killed by a robot named Omega One. A human-cyborg hybrid. Now, some of the films on my list try to hide that they're ripoffs, but not this one. It is beat-for-beat copying Predator, even down to the Predator's hub. Like, you see the on-screen display of what the Predator sees. You see that right here, too. It's very low budget, and uh, I think it's really funny when you see from Omega-1's point of view, he's, like, talking in computer language, but it just sounds like he's saying greasy greasy so as he's seeing these guys it just sounds like he's saying greasy 
greasy. <laughs> Enemy sighted, moving target, greasy. On target, on target, target, enter, greasy. A uh, lot of really fun explosions, a lot of bodies flying everywhere, including one ex- explosion that uh, blows a guy up and you just see his like bottom half, like his legs just fly out. Filled with cheese, a lot of cheese in this movie. But uh, I, I think it's wildly entertaining. That's uh, Robo War from 1988. Uh, Predator up until the end when it turns Robocop. Yes, uh, this is definitely on my must-see list now. I love sort of that era, especially in the, like the mid to late 80s into the early 90s, I guess you could say as well, of like European exploitation ripoffs yep. where it's it's almost like a whole brand new experience because you're, you're watching it through, through this. You're, you're sort of watching these films. I'm thinking specifically of a movie like Lady Terminator <laughs> yeah, um, yep. where you're seeing what they saw in the film or like the aspects of the film that um, uh, seem to resonate with their audiences as opposed to ours and like what they decide to copy, what they decide to change. And I don't know, for some reason, even though it's very clearly, um, you know, almost not not too far off from the mockbusters of today, uh, it doesn't feel cynical if, because it's this whole other cultural thing going on, almost kind of like watching like the like the Bollywood remakes. In Italy, they just did a ton of these and mm-hmm. uh, they were all entertaining. I think it was less like, let's do this to make money and more like. Let's do this because we can make something just as awesome. And they were never just as awesome, but they were always a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, you see the the villain in this, Omega One. It's clearly just, he looks like a dirt bike rider in a scuba suit. <laughs> it's <laughs> the, the, They just made do with what they had, and it is very entertaining. So that's a Robo War from 1988 at number three for me. Awesome. I almost put Lucio Fulci Zombie 2 or mm, just zombie mm-hmm. known in the States as one of mine, but I, I decided to go with a few other things instead. You talked about your favorite Jaws ripoff, and my favorite Jaws ripoff is Tremors from 1990. They're coming! The good old days of good old monster movies are back. Tremors. It was yeah. funny. It's humongous. Slimy. Take your word for it. The scariest monster movie since Aliens, says Sneak Previews. Bloodthirsty, that creature. Action-packed. It's a wild film. And Time Magazine raves, Tremors is bound to become a classic. Tremors, rated PG-13, starts tomorrow at theaters everywhere. And I think it's one of the only of the uh, Jaws ripoffs, maybe because there was some, some distance away from the original, although... There were several Jaws sequels that came out throughout the 80s. Um, But maybe because there's sort of a different context to it. It, It's a little bit more self-aware of what it's doing. uh, That it doesn't... This is one of the only ones where I feel like uh, the special effects and the monsters attacks and the gore effects and all of that stuff doesn't take precedent over the characters in the same way that the original Jaws did. Um, you know, I don't know who hasn't seen Tremors, um, but it is a film that stars Kevin Bacon and Burt Ward. Uh, 
and it's about a very small town in, I want to say New Mexico, uh, where they're working as handymen and they're trying to look for their, you know, their way out of the situation, trying to move on to bigger and better things. But right before they move, they realize that their little community out in the middle of the desert is being picked off one by one by these giant earthworms that have these like horned snake-like tongues in uh, inside of them uh, and can are, and they are attracted. The worms themselves are attracted to the vibrations that are made by the people above ground. So, you know, early on in the film, they introduce these fun little things like the, uh, uh, in the little corner store that everyone goes to, there's a loud uh, refrigerator that's constantly buzzing. Um, or you have uh, the little girl from from Jurassic Park. Uh, this is pre-Jurassic Park, but uh, she she's hopping around all day on a pogo stick. So they, they introduce all these things of like, you know, they're obviously going to cause the vibrations that attract these creatures. But... You get to know every character in this little town, all like 12, 13 of them. Um, even if they're only in a scene or two, you get a good sense of this community. You get a good sense of who these people are. And there's something kind of cozy and there's a sort of a lighter touch here, even though we're dealing with man-eating monsters. And they're, they don't skimp on the gore effects. They, when it happens, it does happen. Yep. But it also kind of feels... Uh, I don't know. It has that same kind of um, energy as Jaws. And I think you mentioned this on a uh, a recent podcast as well, that Jaws sort of switches tones halfway through, where it starts out as a mystery horror, and then halfway through it comes kind of becomes this adventure movie or this buddy movie. Um, and I think the same thing can kind of be said here. They sort of, you know, we see it plays with that Jaws structure of, you know, people kind of, unwittingly attracting these creatures and getting killed and nobody knows what's going on and nobody knows how to make it stop. And then eventually um, it becomes a fight for survival. Um, but it becomes this like, you know, small town do-gooder um, uh, community project of getting rid of these giant worms. This is a great choice and a great movie. Great monster effects too. Yeah. Totally still hold up. Yeah, they totally do. Feels like a 1950s monster movie made mm -hmm. into a 1990s action movie. And uh, Bacon and Ward have great chemistry as the, as the two leads here. It's just a really good script. It's a really propulsive movie. Once it starts going, it doesn't slow down. Like you said, there's a lot of rug being pulled out from under you moments. Mm -hmm. Just a blast. And I think there's like five Tremors movies. I've only seen the first one. I've seen the first two uh, part two came out when I was at a very impressionable age and I got the poster for free from a video store that I frequented. So I became obsessed with the idea of like, I need to see Tremors too. Yeah. So I, I rented it multiple times that summer when it was new, I think. And then eventually I caught up with the first one. So I actually saw two before one. Um, but, uh, and I, I maybe... I should go back and look at Tremors 2 before I give it a full endorsement. But I remember it being fun for what it was. Um, but Tremors 1, I think, is, you know, 
kind of a perfect film for the type of movie that it's trying to be. And like you said, it it's, there's no fat on this. It, it, it knows exactly how to use the runtime, how much of each character you should really go into, how much monster to show versus not show. Um, and I feel like, you know, eventually once we get into the flying ones and we get into the, the old West tremors and all of the like direct to DVD sequels, it starts to become more and more about the special effects and the monsters than, than the characters. Right. Right. Well, Tremors, if you're a fan of Jaws, go watch Tremors. Watch Tremors before you watch Orca. But uh, yeah, both <laughs> different types of movies. Terrestrial Jaws. Yes, yes. Uh, okay, number two for me. There was a video store cover that I used to always see. I never got to rent the movie. The cover looks so badass for 1987's Rotor. 25 years in the future. The ultimate weapon against crime will be the judge, jury, and executioner. And it will not be human. But here, the future has already arrived 25 years too soon. Impossible. Robotic. It's okay, honey, it's a police officer. Officer. Tactical. Operation. Research. Rotor. How would one spell Rotor? R-O-T-O-R, but it's with, uh, it's like abbreviated because it stands for something. Oh, okay. So it's like motor, but with an R. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Rotor is one of those blockbuster video cassette covers that looks awesome, but the android on the cover looks nothing like the android in the film. This is dual ripoffs of Robocop and Terminator. Now, when I said watching Skyscraper would make you a little depressed, watching Rotor will have you in a great mood the entire time. Uh, Rotor stands for Robotic Officer Tactical Operation Research, <laughs> and it is about this uh, this Rotor robot that is a prototype intended to combat crime, like RoboCop. And unlike RoboCop, this robot escapes from the lab and then goes on a killing rampage. And a scientist, they call him the leading scientist in the field of police robotics. Dr. J. Barrett C. Coldiron. That's his name. J. Barrett C. Coldiron. He's tasked with bringing the robot down so that the, the senator can take credit for the project on his way to the White House. In terms of entertaining as hell, so bad they're good films, I think Rotor might be at the top of my list. There's, um, just to, to give you a, a taste of what you're getting with Rotor, okay? We watch Cold Iron. He gets up as his alarm clock goes. He walks over, gets a cup of coffee, grabs a carrot. He lives on this like farm for some reason. He walks outside to his horse with the carrot, his cup of coffee, and he gives the horse his coffee, and then he bites into the carrot. That's like the tone <laughs> here. I don't think horses are supposed to drink coffee, but Cold Irons is drinking this coffee. The dialogue in this movie is so clunky and unnatural that it is just one of the most entertaining watches if you got a beer and a couple of friends, including lines like, 
they're trying to boot him off the force because he's also a cop. I know it's weird, but he's like, let me tell you something, mister. You fire me and I'll make more noise than two skeletons making love in a tin coffin, brother. That's how he delivers the line. It feels like all of his lines were recorded and then dubbed in later with the same dialogue, which is weird. There are some stories to this movie. There's a Native American guy who works at the robotics lab. His name is Shoe Boogie. This dude has some fantastic lines. He says uh, a riff on the line that we've all heard, like, once you go black, you never go back. His line as this Native American guy, he says, once you go red, you never get out of bed. Okay, (laughs) he has like all these weird, great one liners in the credits. He's uncredited. Because apparently nobody knew the guy's name and he left the set and nobody figured out what he was called. So he's just uncredited and nobody has ever been able to find out who this dude is. Um, Did he get paid? That's a great question. That's a great question. (laughs) I don't know. There's also this little robot who works in the police like robotics lab that looks like a cross of Johnny Five and Wally. And he's just like scooting around tossing jokes everywhere it's hilarious the cover of the of the movie has like this really badass looking android the actual rotor robot just looks like uh it it looks like the the t-1000 from terminator 2 but with a porn stash and glasses on it's so entertaining rotor from 1987 if you're looking for something where it's like i want to drink a beer watch this with my buddies and have a great time. It's going to fit the bill. Now, unfortunately, the only Blu-ray release was a Shout Factory, or yeah, it was a Shout Factory double header. It had Millennium and Rotor. It's now out of print and fetches like insane prices. So you'll have to probably like import it somewhere or find a DVD, but you can probably, you probably find the whole fucking thing on YouTube. I don't know. Rotor from 1987, fantastic ripoff of both RoboCop and Terminator. I actually just checked. It is on streaming on Tubi right now. Oh, sweet. There you go. Watch it on Tubi. Because of course it is. Because <laughs> everything <laughs> weird is streaming on Tubi. Yes. Tubi is the untapped resource for bizarre B-movies. <laughs> um, I will be watching that. Yes. Check it out. Let me know what you think of it. Cassidy Robinson, grand finale time. Number one on your list of top five ripoffs. All right. I hope this isn't too anticlimactic because, like I said, this isn't really in any particular order. But the last one I have on my list here is Motel Hell from 1980. Conveniently located off the main road is Ida and Vincent's Motel. You want us to uh, register? No, that won't be necessary. You'll never forget Ida's cooking, Farmer Vincent's prompt and courteous service. And ask to see their secret garden. You just might die laughing. Motel Hell rated R. Uh, I consider this a bit of a Texas Chainsaw Massacre ripoff. Um, long before the series was ripping itself off. You know, there was a lot of these like uh, killer redneck movies that came out after Texas Chainsaw that weren't exactly slasher, but maybe slasher adjacent. And of those, uh, my favorite is probably uh, Motel Hell. Um, This is about a family uh, that sells 
some sort of food item like uh, fritters or they're fritters. Yeah, they're fritters. Yeah, there's like a there's a there's like a rhyme something something takes fritters. all kinds of critters to make Farmer Vincent's fritters. <laughs> all right, you're on it. I, it's been it's been a minute since I've seen this movie, but what I liked about this is kind of like what I was saying about Tremors is there's a little bit more self-awareness in the, the way that they attack this. There's definitely kind of a horror comedy angle going on here, even though it is extremely gruesome and um, very depraved. There's a, you know, there's a scene where these, where these killers like um, bury uh, a bunch of people up to their necks in their garden and then, you know, use, various ways to like slice their throats and make them so they can't speak, but they're kind of gurgling instead. Um, so again, it, it goes for the horror stuff, but there's, it almost kind of feels like if John Waters wrote and directed a Texas chainsaw ripoff. Yeah. Like there's, there's kind of a bizarre fascination to the movie and, and, and it almost sort of, is much more interested in these family members, these crazed killers than it is with the victims, um, which you would see in other slashers in the eighties, but they're kind of played like one of those John Waters style family of freak weirdos that are sort of lovable in their own way. It feels, it almost feels like a parody of, uh, of Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. That that's what I was going to say. They, they beat, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 with the Chainsaw Duel <laughs> yeah. uh, by, uh, by a handful of years, which, yeah, Toby Hooper, when he came back and did Texas Chainsaw 2 and played it a lot more broadly, um, he kind of hits on some of those tones that I think Motel Hell already had those bases covered, um, you know, five or four or five years previous. The uh, director of this is, this is going to like sound really bonkers, but now all he does, and I don't know if he still does this, but all he was doing in the 2010s were direct to TV Christmas comedies and dramas, like, like all those really shitty Christmas movies Hallmark-y that you see pop kind of up. Things. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. what he was doing for the last like 10 years. But yeah, Motel Hell is a really wildly fun movie. Like you said, it's more black comedy than it is straight up horror, but there's some great imagery here of a dude with a fucking pig's head running around with a chainsaw that you will not forget. Right. Yeah. You can see where they were trying to sort of one up, um, you know, sort of the depravity of Texas Chainsaw, but also sort of never, never embarrassed to lean into camp. Well, I would not say that was anticlimactic. I think Motel Hell is a, is a great movie in its own right. And uh, if you like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, by the time this shows out, the new one will be up on Netflix. If you're looking for a little bit more of that and you've already gone through the Texas Chainsaw stuff, give Motel Hell a try. Yes. All right. My number one, I saved this for number one for a reason, because two of my favorite sci-fi slash horror movies of all time are Alien and the thing sure and just like with jaws we could do a whole list of alien ripoffs because mm-hmm. alien hit in 79 and it was just let's do this alien underwater alien on a planet alien on another ship it was everywhere 
Well, there's a movie from 1987, and this is an anime movie. I don't normally talk about anime movies, but this mm. one I think deserves to be on this list because it is a direct mashup of those two films. It's called Lily Cat from 1987. Have you seen Lily Cat? I haven't. You're bringing a lot of deep cuts to the table. Um, I maybe have the cover is looking familiar to me. It looks like one of those things that might have been on the Action Channel past 3 a.m. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It sounds like one of those type of movies. Uh, <laughs> the The plot of Lily Cat is in the 23rd century, companies are spending space. They're sending spacecrafts out to survey distant planets for resource mining. And the technology aboard the ship enables them to put people into this hypersleep for 20 years, but their bodies only biologically age a month. So you're going on these 20-year journeys, but you're waking up 20 years in the future, and you've only aged a month. We got this crew, they're going out, 20 years passes by, they wake up, and there's two stressful things happening on this ship. First off, a message that was delivered to them reveals that two of the people on the ship have stowed away illegally posing as others so you have this like who's who who's really who they say they are we're gonna have to figure this out a la the thing mm -hmm. and then there's a space bacteria on board that has come in during the time when they were asleep that goes into its victims inhabits them mimics them and then kills them grotesquely when it leaves them again a la the thing now, as a movie, this is predictable, but it's super entertaining. I think the animation is really good. The alien stuff looks really cool, and the gore is really well done. And there is some pretty horrific imagery here. The voice dubbing is pretty poor, I'll say. Although I will throw a shout out to the captain of the ship, who has this really interesting monologue about the effects that this kind of space travel has on somebody. And he outlines how, like, during his first mission, he had just had a baby. And then when he comes back from the mission, the kid's like 40 years old. They're like the same age because it's 20 years to get there, 20 years to come back. But he has only aged a month or two months rather. Mm -hmm. And as he goes on more and more of these missions, the people that you love and leave behind just die. They die off and you're the same age. And I also thought the premise of committing a crime and then stowing away into space while barely aging was another really interesting concept allowing you to basically come back to an earth where nobody remembers you or what you've done and that's pretty interesting in terms of so i, I kind of outlined how the thing works in here in terms of alien i mean the ship looks just like the ship i think it even has the same name as the ship on alien the alien has this acidic blood just like in the first alien and there's a secret android keeping tabs on everybody just like in alien there's there's scenes lifted directly from alien if you're not into anime, I would still say give this a shot. It's a really brisk watch. It's like 70 minutes long, so it's not going to take up a whole lot of time. It's pretty interesting. Like I said, it's got some great imagery, and it's two of my favorite sci-fi movies mashed together. So I, I definitely recommend Lily Cat from 1987 as my number one. Any honorable mentions, things real quick that you want to throw out that maybe uh, you wanted to put on your list but just didn't have the room? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I I talked about I almost had Zombie 2 or, and or Lucio Fulci Zombie um, on my list. A, a kind of a unofficial se uh, Italian sequel to the um, Romero films. Um, 
I almost put critters on the list. And then again, you could talk about a whole subgenre of the gremlins ripoffs that came out in the eighties. Um, I almost put romancing the stone on my list as uh, sort of an Indiana Jones ripoff of which there were a few of those as well. Um, and Carnosaur, which <laughs> was the, uh, the, the, Oh, damn it. What's his name? Uh, Roger Corman Corman. Thank you. Roger Corman's answer to, to Jurassic park, which I want to say came out maybe earlier that year or possibly just the year before, um, which is just totally batshit crazy. And, you know, maybe one of the last like watchable Corman films. Yeah. Corman had a ton of, of like ripoffs in his career. Oh yeah. He made it literally made a career out of it. I mean, that was a lot of what he did. I mean, there was always like, he had his interesting, like, you know, um, Poe movies and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, a lot of his movies were kind of as an exploitation or looking at what just did well and try to make an, a version of it as quick as possible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I had some some Corman films on my uh, honorable mentions. Well, I, I think he like executively executive produced a bunch of Mad Max ripoffs like the new Barbarians mm. Uh, I had Deep Star 6 and Creature on my honorable mentions, which are both kind of alien ripoffs. Mm-hmm. Mac and Me and Extro, which were a part of the E.T. ripoff wave. Uh, you could say Reservoir Dogs ripoff of City on Fire. I I considered that. Um, the only reason I have it is I have not seen the original City on Fire. Um, so I but I, I mean, I've, you know, I've seen the side by side video edits that are on youtube of like you know showing how the plots are almost exactly the same yep yep and uh the last one that i didn't put on my list much like you didn't put reservoir dogs on your list because you haven't seen the original i have not seen kimba the white lion which the lion king ripped off so uh, that's why i didn't put that on my list so the lion king could be considered a ripoff as well but wasn't that sort of always disney's especially disney animation wasn't that always their thing is they sort of mine these old fairy tales or these these legends from 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 elsewhere and then they just you know change the ending so that nobody dies and everyone's happy <laughs> yeah pretty much pretty much <laughs> if you uh look up the side by sides of of Kimba the white lion and the lion king they are strikingly similar uh but again i haven't seen the actual movie Cassidy Robinson, great list, great topic. Where can people find the MacGuffin podcast? So you can find us on social media at MacGuffin Pod on Twitter and Instagram. We, I post new episodes whenever they go up. That's probably the best way to go. Um, but we are searchable under iTunes, Spotify, uh, Player.fm, and Google Podcasts. Uh, and most of the other podcatchers as well. Um, it is a little confusing. There is another version of the MacGuffin podcast that existed before mine called the MacGuffin Film Podcast, which was more of an interview show that the folks over at the MacGuffin in Seattle and the Seattle International Film Festival will, would do whenever they had somebody to interview. Um, the MacGuffin Podcast is what you're going to be looking for. Um, 
we are also uh, you can find us at the uh, the website mcguff.in and you'll see us in their news feed um, at least once a week. Very cool. And I'm going to make it easy. I'm going to put it in the show notes for everybody. So make sure to hit the show notes, follow Cassie, follow the podcast and uh, get your MacGuffin on. Awesome. What's your favorite ripoff film? Did we miss any? Did we make any egregious errors? Let me know on social media at Force5Pod on Twitter, at Force5Podcast on Instagram. And if you liked what you heard, please review the show wherever you listened and tell your friends about Force 5. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some rip-offs. Thank you.